Amen. We sing that like it could be today. That was wonderful singing. Wonderful. Uh, what a blessing uh, to be able to, to sing together in the joy of the Lord. And we look forward to His coming. And we'll talk some more about that tonight as uh, we'll turn to Isaiah chapter 11. We were there for our scripture reading. We'll refer to that uh, passage uh, here again uh, in just a, a little bit. But uh, again, we have been uh, working through the various topics related to prophecy, and we uh, have been specifically looking at the millennium. Uh, we started last week, and we're uh, looking at the pre-millennial return of Christ. Again, pre-trib, as we have seen on this chart that is behind me. The rapture of the church takes place before the seven-year period known as the tribulation, and we are pre-millennial in that Christ returns and establishes a 1,000-year literal reign here on the earth. And so I'll skip through as uh, we have looked at uh, these uh, already, and I won't go through and review every single one of these, but this has been our uh, journey through uh, our series on prophecy. We've looked at the various judgments in the tribulation period. We have looked at the Jewish evangelists, and we have spent time on all of these, and then the trumpet judgments, as well as the two witnesses, and then the bull judgments coming to the end of the seven-year time of tribulation, seven-year period known as Daniel's 70th week, or the tribulation period. We then came to the end of the tribulation, and we've talked about the Battle of Armageddon, and this is what takes place just before Christ returns. As a matter of fact, the battle will end with Christ returning and defeating the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet by the word of his mouth. In that short amount of time, the Antichrist and his army will be defeated, and Christ will cast the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. And so we spent some time uh, looking again at all of these, uh, and then that brought us to uh, this place where we left off last week. I'll go back and review just briefly here these other two views of the Millennial Kingdom, and we believe as pre-trib, pre-millennial Baptists, that this is the, the pre-millennial, the pre-trib, pre-millennial view is the, the best and the most biblical understanding of the millennial kingdom. An all-millennial view will basically try to explain away a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, even though Revelation 20 is extremely clear about a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ here on the earth. The all-millennial position will explain that away, either through figurative language or various ways in which they try to uh, reinterpret, and I would say misinterpret, uh, that clear passage in Revelation 20 as well as others, to say there is no literal millennial reign of Christ. And you can see the timeline there, just a rough 
timeline uh, that maybe helps us in the sequence of the events, but you can see the church age will then eventually end with apostasy and the second coming of Christ, and so there's no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ here on the earth. The post-millennial position is that Christ returns after uh, the millennium. We see the church age, and then there is this idea that there will be an increase of goodness and righteousness, and the earth will become better and better and better to the point that Christ will just want to leave heaven and come to earth because earth will be in such a grand and glorious and heavenly type of states that Christ will want to leave heaven to come to the earth and establish his millennial kingdom, which is basically already in place because there is so much goodness and righteousness that Christ will just come right in and step right into a majestic kingdom that has been prepared by the church with such goodness and righteousness that Christ will just return and step right onto his throne and begin to rule and to reign. Okay, So that position, the post-millennial position, that Christ returns after the 1,000-year reign, that the church will uh, usher in this 1,000 years and then Christ will uh, come as a result of this grand and glorious uh, time that the church has prepared the earth with, this has created people who, or caused people to look at things like World War I, World War II, uh, even like the Korean War and some of the events in the Cold War and even modern day current events and have tried to get into the book of Revelation in Matthew 24 and 25 and have tried to pick and choose different events and say, okay, well that fits in here, that fits in here, and they have tried to figure out ways to, and I remember listening to one guy talk about how he was uh, determining in his post-millennial view uh, how all these things were, were going to, to fit and where that a thousand years was, and again, some of them explain it away in figurative language, uh, etc. But then after the church ushers in this, this great uh, time of goodness and righteousness, uh, and whether they take it as a, a literal 1,000-year period, most of them will just take it as a figurative uh, period of, of good on the earth and righteousness on the earth. Then after that, Christ comes, and then there's the resurrections, and then there's the judgments. So in the all-millennial position, since there's no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ... Christ's reign is strictly in the hearts of believers, but also in the all-millennial position, many times, because the all-millennial position is often in Reformed churches, it is often the case where the church is equated with Israel. And there's also other things in the Reformed theology that we would not agree with, obviously, but we also don't believe that the church and Israel are the same. But the all-millennial position pretty much forces you into an interpretation of Scripture where the church and Israel are one and the same. So one of the things that we have to understand, and I hope this chart helps a little bit, one of the things that we have to understand is in prophecy, as I've talked about before, the Old Testament prophets would, would often, with 
obviously by, by the inspiration of God, they would look ahead and they would see mountain peaks of prophecy. And notice, and I like how this chart breaks it down, in Old Testament prophecies, the two mountain peaks are often seen as one and the same. And they would not separate the first coming from the second coming. Okay? And there are prophecies specific to Christ's first coming, his incarnation. And Christ fulfilled those prophecies at his incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. But then there are prophecies regarding his second kingdom. And some of the near fulfillment in the first coming helps us understand the far fulfillment of the second coming. But we have to make the distinctions between the first mountain peak, the first coming of Christ, and the second mountain peak, the second coming of Christ. And for the Old Testament prophets, often that valley of the church age was not completely uh, in their understanding. And that's why Paul would refer to the church age as a mystery. Not because the Old Testament prophets were misinterpreting the scriptures, not because the Old Testament prophets were denying what God had revealed or what God had said. It's just, again, like we sometimes, we don't get it. We don't fully understand. We don't fully grasp. We don't fully uh, realize all that is being taught or, or being said. Sometimes, you know how it is. Some, sometimes we're, we're a little slow about things. You know how it is in a classroom or when we're uh, getting a lot of information and, and, and it's not that the Old Testament prophet, prophets weren't wise men. It's not that they weren't men who received the very word of God, God breathed. It's just that in their comprehension, humanly speaking, it was hard for them to distinguish between the two mountain peaks, between the first and the second coming. So when Paul refers to the mystery of the church age in that valley, he's simply saying this was not previously revealed or previously understood truth. And then there's these distinctions. And again, did the disciples of Christ, the apostles, did believers even at the time of Christ, did they not have in their mind, in many cases, the idea of a literal earthly kingdom that Christ was going to establish? They knew in their mind, they understood the Messiah was going to have a kingdom. Okay, so again, I know I'm building again a little bit of repetition and a little bit of foundation here. We have to understand three aspects of the kingdom. The literal reign of Christ for 1,000 years here on the earth. That is what we're talking about right now in this section of our, of our series. The millennial reign of Christ, the millennium. But does Christ reign in the hearts of all those who know him as their savior? Yes. There's an aspect of Christ's kingdom right now where when a person gets saved, they become a citizen of heaven, Philippians talks about. We become citizens of Christ's kingdom, God's kingdom. But right now it is a spiritual kingdom. All those who know Christ as their Savior, when a person gets saved, they become a citizen of heaven, they become a citizen of God's kingdom. So in that sense, the spiritual kingdom is what is in place right now. Now, we're not all the best citizens. 
in God's kingdom. Right now, we sometimes rebel and we argue with God and we aren't the best representations of the citizens of heaven. Sometimes we are not living up to the standard or the expectations of what God has for us as citizens of heaven. That's why Paul will talk about set your affections on things above. Uh, Seek those things which are above. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 6 and verse 33. Because we get very, even though we are citizens of God's kingdom, citizens of heaven, we get very earthly, temporally minded. Lust the flesh, lust the eyes, pride of life, the world, and all of that. Do we get kicked out of God's kingdom? Do we get removed from being a citizen of God's kingdom when we sin? If we're truly born again and a citizen of God's kingdom, we don't get booted out when we sin. We believe in eternal security. The, the once saved, always saved. Just like in the family of God, we become a child of God. We don't get kicked out of the family when we sin. Okay, so the the kingdom right now is a spiritual kingdom. We don't always submit like we should. We don't always fully obey like we should. We're not always the the best citizens and living uh, the, the best kind of heavenly citizen life that we should live. But nevertheless, God still reigns over those who are his. And then there's the literal 1,000 year reign, the millennial kingdom, and then there's the eternal kingdom that one day we will, as believers, enter into forever, for all eternity. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, in a future message. So this chart, I hope, helps a little bit. And then last week, we looked at the preparation for the millennial kingdom, the preparation for the millennial kingdom. And we see here some of these events that we just quickly reviewed. We see that Christ returns to the earth. The Antichrist and his armies are defeated at the Battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. And Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. A 75-day interval exists between Christ's return and the start of the millennial kingdom. So I'm going to go back and I'm just going to add a little bit uh, to this here about this 75-day interval. Daniel 12, verses 11 and 12 make reference to this 75 days. Ezekiel 40 through 48 talk about the millennial temple. Very specific in those chapters. Ezekiel 40 through 48 about the millennial temple. The center of worship during the millennial kingdom. Of course, Christ is on his throne but there is a temple in the millennial kingdom of Christ that is the center of worship. Of course, Christ, again, literally on his throne for that 1,000 years. The first 30 days of that 75-day interval appear to be related to the establishment of this temple, the millennial temple. The other 45 days are not described specifically in Scripture. Uh, possibly just another 45 days of preparation for the kingdom. Christ establishing himself as the, the literal physical ruler over the earth during that time. 
So who are the participants? We looked at this last week, and then I had a very good question afterwards, so I'm going to make sure that I make this um, more clear. But we have, first of all, saved Jews. We can go to the parable of the virgins in Matthew 25, and we can recognize those who were the wise virgins as the saved Jews who enter into the kingdom. We could go to Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 39, Jeremiah 31, and Romans 11. And they all make reference to these saved Jews okay, who enter into the millennial kingdom. These are, first of all, the Jews who survive the tribulation. And I should have made this distinction more clear last week. And somebody asked me afterward, who do we reign over? The Old Testament saints reign, the apostles and Christians reign, the New Testament saints reign, and the tribulation saints reign. Well, who do we reign over? Well, there were Jews who survived the tribulation. They got saved. They recognized Christ as the Messiah. They were even helped by people along the way in the tribulation. They were helped. They were given a cup of cold water in Christ's name. They survived. They were not martyred. They were not slain, and they enter into the millennial kingdom as saved individuals. And then there's the saved Gentiles. Matthew 24, we looked at last week, we won't go back there, but there's the women at the grinding at the mill, and one is taken, the other is left. The one is taken away into judgment, awaiting the great white throne judgment. The one that is left is the saved individual who enters into the millennial kingdom. So, There are people who survived the tribulation, saved individuals. They have not died. They don't have their glorified body. They don't have their resurrected body. They're saved individuals. They enter into the kingdom, but they did not die and did not experience a resurrection body like what we get at the rapture like those who are martyred during the tribulation will get, okay? those who have died in Christ are given that resurrected body, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. We then, as in the case of us as New Testament saints, we are reigning, we are given responsibilities, celestial work in the millennial kingdom, along with the apostles and Christians, the Old Testament saints, and the tribulation saints. All of these individuals have either died or been raptured and received their glorified bodies. What does a glorified body look like? Well, I don't know exactly, but we have some idea from 1 Corinthians 15. And Jesus, who after his resurrection, he was, for 40 days showing himself to various groups of believers, and he was actually by the, at the seashore, and he actually ate food that was prepared there, and he was able to transport himself instantaneously to different places, and his scars were visible. Because remember what Thomas was told, to put his hand and, and to physically touch his scars, so we know his scars are visible. So that gives us some idea of the glorified body. Where else do we see a glorified body, a glimpse of it? We see it at the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, we know uh, that uh, 
Jesus was there, um, along with uh, Elijah and, and, and Moses, and, and they're there in their glorified state. There's a glimpse, a glimpse of the glorified body. That is the body, the glorified body, that the Old Testament saints, the apostles and Christians who, uh, were, who, 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 were, who died in Christ, Matthew 19, New Testament saints, those of us who died in Christ or were raptured, and tribulation saints who were martyred and then are, are at the throne of Christ, giving him worship, they receive their glorified body, they come back with Christ in the establishment of his millennial kingdom, and we are given responsibilities of leadership, of responsibility, of governorship, and it's celestial work that doesn't bring pain, that doesn't bring toil. And like I talked about last week, we can perform this work, we can put in a long shift, (laughs) if I can say it this way, we can put in a long shift of work for Christ in the millennial kingdom, and we won't go home tired and wanting to sit on the couch and eat our potato chips and watch our our favorite TV show or sport program, whatever. It will be in a glorified state that we will be worshiping and serving as fellow laborers with Christ in his kingdom doing God's work in ways I cannot fully comprehend and understand. But that has something to do also with our rewards and the responsibilities and the privileges and the giving back of ourselves in our talents and our rewards and our crowns in our worship to the Lord and our service for him in the millennial kingdom is predicated upon, I believe, how we live right now. The privilege of serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in His physical millennial reign, that privilege and the level of service and the joy of that is somehow associated with our service and our faithfulness and our obedience right now. We forget that, don't we? We forget the eternal aspect, the the, the, the fact that our service right now makes a difference for eternity. Our obedience and our faithfulness, our stewardship right now matters for eternity. Sometimes we get this attitude. We hear it among Christians. We, we struggle with it. I know I do from time to time. Does all this really matter? Does it really matter that I am a faithful husband and a father? You better believe it does. Not just for now, but for eternity. For Ruling and reigning with Christ and the joy of that and the privilege of that. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Faithful in the little things and you'll be given faithfulness over much. Yeah, there are principles of that that apply right now, practically speaking, but they also have eternal and future implications. And so does it matter that we are faithful to church, we're faithful in our Bible reading, that we're faithful in our service for the Lord, that we are exercising our gifts in the spiritual service for the Lord, in edifying the brethren and evangelizing the world? Yes, it matters. See, we, we think we think sometimes, well, it doesn't matter if I participate in that sin for a little while. I have heaven anyway. 
Is that what God tells us in, in the book of Romans? Paul comes right out and says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Not just for now and the consequences and the sowing and reaping principle, but also for the heavenly promise and rewards and the future kingdom and the privileges and the joys and the rejoicing of serving our Lord, our King, in His kingdom. There's huge practical applications for our faithful, righteous, holy living that we should be practicing right now. Be holy for I am holy. So I hope that helps as I uh, just spent time talking about our glorified bodies. The references are Philippians 3.21 and Daniel 12.3. So let's look at the perfection of the millennial kingdom. This is fascinating. okay? And one of the things that... If you've ever had a chance to go, I know I talk about it a lot, but we love the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. And it's just one of our favorite, two of our favorite places to go. And if you go through the Creation Museum, they have exhibits, I think it's one or two exhibits, that you walk through and they're, they're, they're saying what, they're asking questions like, what, what was life like in the Garden of Eden before sin? And they'll have plaques, and they'll use references of the millennial kingdom to talk about what life might have been like in the Garden of Eden before sin. Satan is bound for a thousand years. The only people that enter into the kingdom are saved people, either in their glorified state or they've never died, but they're saved. So there are people who are literally physically living on the earth, having never died or not having received their glorified state, that are going to be marrying and having children. But we who have received our glorified bodies, we're not going to be marrying and having children. All right. But those who are physically ushered into the millennial kingdom, okay, who survived the tribulation, they're going to be marrying, they're going to be having children. But Satan is bound. Who will have still their sin nature? Only those people who physically survived the tribulation and entered into the millennial kingdom in their physical bodies, having never been glorified and received their glorified body. They are still going to have a sin nature. We can't forget that, okay? But life here on the earth will be far better and far different than it is right now. Okay? We need godly leadership in so many ways, in so many areas, from the church to the home to politics to law enforcement to the justice system. On and on we could go. We are desperate for godly, righteous leadership. We want it. Can I take a, make a little bit of a caveat here? You know who really wants godly leadership and God programmed it into her? Women, wives. They really want, deep down in their souls, godly leaders. And I, just, I say that as a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's part of what God has put within a woman, to want a godly man to lead them. So, ladies, again... Look for a godly man who has leadership and responsibility before God and is submissive to the Lord and is a servant leader. 
men, not just for us as husbands, but young men, unmarried men, be preparing right now to be the servant leader in your home. Women want, godly women, God-fearing women want a God-fearing man and a servant leader in their home who will lead their home in the ways of the Lord. Deep down, God has put that within a woman. That's a little, little rabbit trail that, that's, that's free, that's, that's extra, that's a different, different sermon. But anyway, all that being said is we are desperate for godly leadership. Failure in the priests, failure in the kings, failure in the prophets, all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. As godly as some of those men were, there was failure in the prophets, the priests, and the kings because we're mortal men with a sin nature. But when Jesus Christ comes and establishes his millennial kingdom, he's the perfect king, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest. This is going to be incredible. It, it can't, we can't fully comprehend it because we're so used to lousy leadership. We're so used to failures in the home, in the church, and in politics, and on and on it goes. What a joy it will be to have a king who rules perfectly in holiness, in righteousness, with omniscience, with omnipotence, and with omnipresence. That's incredible. Isaiah 11, where we were earlier. Isaiah 11, where we were in our scripture reading. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Verse number two, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Shall make of him quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. He knows all things. He's omniscient. But with, the, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. That's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as king, ruling and reigning in perfection with all knowledge, with perfect judgment, in all fairness, in all justice, we crave fairness and justice. Christ will bring that in absolute holiness and perfection during the millennial kingdom. Righteous rule. We just spent some time looking at that. Peace. Isaiah chapter 2 talks about the peace that will be experienced during the millennial kingdom. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but I'll just go back quickly to Isaiah chapter number 2. And we see there in verse number two, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. 
And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The nations will be at peace. Isn't that an incredible thought? Are there not wars everywhere we seem to go? We, we think of the, the war in Ukraine, but there are other wars, civil wars, tension and strife and division. The, the Horn of Africa, uh, the area around Ethiopia and uh, Eritrea and Somalia, there's constant wars going on, different rebel groups. We could talk about other places. On and on we can mention in the news, some that are more prominent in the headlines, some that are less, all that's gone. There won't be wars among the nations. Harmony among man and animals. We go back to Isaiah 11 and verse number 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. Now, I'm going to pick on Derek for a minute. But Derek would have loved this a few months ago when the raccoon was getting in and eating his chickens. And I'm, going to, I'm picking on you, Derek. I hope you don't mind me. Okay. But he's got a, I think he's got a reinforcement coming. And uh, there's going to be no raccoon getting into that chicken coop. But there, there won't be that. The wolf, the wolf shall also, the, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. So, our 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 youngest children, you're just able to walk, and they can they can put a tiger on a leash, they can put a lion on a leash. They 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 could get that that rattlesnake, and they could play around with them. Um, I I'm not I'm not wanting to stick my hand in an aquarium with a poisonous snake, but I, I kind of like snakes. They're, they're, they're kind of cool. We went to a snake demonstration at the Creation Museum. Absolutely fascinating. This guy was pulling snakes out left and right, and he, he, he brought volunteers up, and there were like six, six adults that were carrying this, this big boa constrictor um, on, the, on, the, on the stage. That's going to be nothing we all can, in a sense, kind of be like a Steve Irwin and just go play with the, the snakes. I mean, we, we, cannot, we can't comprehend that. But that's the state of the millennial kingdom. Harmony among man and animals. Divine instruction. Verse number 9 of Isaiah 11. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Fruitfulness like we've never seen before. We're, we're hearing about all kinds of food shortages. And can I throw in another little caveat here, a little rabbit trail? Do you know why there's starvation and famine and hunger? I know that there's weather patterns and all that, but why, why, do, why do people suffer starvation in and, and, and various forms of, of neglect and, and need? It, it's mostly because of sin. It's mostly because of choices and the sin that goes all the way up into leadership. Government, lack of leadership in government, lack of God-fearing leadership in government leads to a lack of resources for the people, to the lack of taking advantage of the resources that God has blessed the people with. I mean, I, I, I read years ago of a huge supply of some sort of grain but it was genetically modified grain. 
and the United Nations was held up from delivering this grain to this impoverished country. I think it was somewhere in Africa. And it was held up because some environmental group, tree-hugging, climate change activist group, said we can't give that grain to that poor country. Those people are dying of starvation. We can't give it to them because it's genetically modified. You know, some of you are farmers and you know all about that kind of thing and you know the genetically modified improvements that allow for an abundance and there's nothing wrong with those crops. As a matter of fact, they provide more. They're maybe insect or, or whatever resistant, various things, and yet that supply couldn't be delivered to a, a nation where people were starving because it was genetically modified and some group held it up. There's going to be fruitfulness all around the world. And there won't be some tyrannical dictator, evil president, or whatever his title is, holding it up. God will, through Jesus Christ, as God is the second person of the Trinity, ruling and reigning literally on the earth, he will make sure that the supply chains are well established and flowing and moving forward and there won't be any worry about carbon emissions and rail strikes and all of that that holds up our supply lines now. There will be fruitfulness and there will be access to the food and Christ will make sure that the world gets what it, it needs to be prosperous. Not in a carnal, worldly way, but in a way that brings glory to God, that honors the life that God created, that has the right view of man and the right view of eternity and the right view of God. Greater health and lifespans. I mean, think about it. If there's fruitfulness and there's the right use of the resources and the right rule Imagine what that's going to do to life and the, flour and the, and the flourishing of, of life. And then Ezekiel 40 through 46 and Zechariah 14 and verse 16 speak of the millennial temple. There will be a central place of worship. And I'm going to close with this. Eventually, in Revelation, there is no longer a physical temple. Because God will tabernacle with men. Okay? But there will be a millennial temple. And, and I want us to understand the church age is, is gone. The church is, is gone. The church, there's a glorified state of the church. There's saved individuals who have, but the church as we know it in the New Testament era is not, in, is not functioning like we think of now. We will all be turning our praise and our worship to Christ on his throne, but there will be a central place of worship referred to as the Millennial Temple. Ezekiel 40 through 48 gives great detail. What does that say, once again, about our lives and our, where our focus should be in the centrality of worship? We see it in the Old Testament, the tabernacle. We see it with the temple. We see it in the New Testament with the church. And then into the millennial kingdom, there's a temple, and then God will tabernacle with men in the eternal kingdom. What does that say, not just about 
our, our worship. What does that say about our God? Who desires our worship. Us measly, wicked sinners whom he gloriously saves in his mercy and his grace. And even during the millennial kingdom when there is a perfect rule and reign and yes, there are still people being born who have a sin nature who will need to get saved and we'll talk about the end of the millennial kingdom, when Satan is loose, we'll get to that at a future lesson, future message. But what does it say about the centrality of our worship, the preeminence of Christ, even now, practically speaking, about how important it is for us to worship God with our whole life, with our whole being? We need corporate worship times. We need them now more than ever. We need the church but we also have our personal worship times and we also have a worship of life. But even the millennial kingdom will have a central place where there will be a focus on the worship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I just, again, can't help but think of the centrality of this theme that we see even in the millennial kingdom of our focus being on Christ, of our submitting to him and of our worship and praise and our life being lived for him and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these incredible, tremendous promises. Lord, they, once again, they, they excite our hearts. They, they energize us, Lord, for service right now. It renews once again our motivation and our, our zeal, Lord, to love you more and to serve you better knowing that our life even now counts for all eternity and ultimately, Lord, it is an opportunity for us, yes, to gain rewards, but Lord, most importantly, to bring glory to your name. Thank you, Lord, for these promises, the, this glimpse into the future that helps us, that assures us, that gives us hope, even in days that can be difficult and days that can be hard sometimes. We thank you for your grace and thank you for these promises and these assurances from your word. And we give you the glory. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.